The best advice I can give you and anyone listening who is a high school student or a college student is to remember this. All opportunities that you're going to have in life are going to come through people. I mean, people, a lot of people think, oh, it's, it's if I can get enough followers, if I can get enough, you know, if I can have a, a, a something go viral or whatever. If you dissect that, that still has to do with people. So all opportunities that you're going to have are going to come from people. And it's not from the masses. It's really from a handful of people who know you, like you, trust you, who are going to see something in you and give you that opportunity. So the number one piece of advice I would give is realize that everyone you encounter, treat them well because they're going to come back into your life. Welcome to Professional Profiles, a podcast where I interview industry experts to understand their jobs, learn about their journeys to success, and uncover the strategies they've used to find it. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Tom Singer, a professional speaker, podcast host, TED Talker, and head of the Austin Technology Council. In this episode, Tom delves into the transformative power of networking, sharing insights and opportunities that arise when we put ourselves out there. In this episode, we uncover the secrets behind successful networking and discover how Tom's expertise can unlock professional growth and success. Here's the interview. How you doing, Mr. Singer? Thank you so much for joining me. Great. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Call call me Tom. Okay. Well, first, could you just walk us through your career trajectory? Yeah, I've had what many would call like an eclectic career. I started off my career as a professional photographer. Uh, working for companies that did uh, like high school proms and uh, college fraternity and sorority parties and corporate events. And I was the head photographer for a company like that when I was in college. And then I went on to manage two other companies early in my career. After that, I went into sales and later into marketing and ended up working in and around the technology community here in Austin back in the 90s and early 2000s. And part of what I was doing was at the law firm and the bank and the consulting firm is I was teaching the professionals, how to get more involved in the community, how to build relationships and how to use that to help advance their career. And then people started asking me to come and speak at their company about the human side of business, about building relationships. And so for 14 years, all I did was I was a professional speaker and trainer. And then for the last year, in addition to that, I've also been running an association called the Austin Technology Council. So I'd love to take a tangent real quick. I would love to go back to the human side of business, but could you briefly talk about the your work with the Austin Technology Council? Yeah, I was hired about a year ago to come in and sort of reinvent this 30-year-old organization. Uh, the Austin Technology Council was founded back before tech was the major uh, industry in Austin, and it was founded as the Austin Software Council. And the idea was to bring these technology entrepreneurs together to help them network, to help them build a community, and to help them put technology on the map as the future economic driver of Austin. And over the last 30 years, obviously, that is what happened, uh, not just because of ATC, but because of a lot of different uh, people and organizations. But I was brought in to sort of look at where does this organization go next? What are some companies and services that we should be on the lookout for in the Austin area? What new tech? Well, I think the greatest thing about Austin is we have an eclectic technology community. We have a strong fintech community. We have a strong gaming community. There's certainly still a lot of software. Semiconductor chips are coming back. So so I don't think as far as like our Austin community, we, we have one sector. I think there's a lot of sectors coming in. And of course, AI and everything that 
falls under that large umbrella, I think is a big part of what the future of technology is going to be. Now, is is AI going to change our lives? I mean, eight years ago, everybody was saying that blockchain was going to change everything. And I don't know that blockchain has changed very much. So I don't think that AI is going to take away jobs. I don't think it's going to change everything, but it becomes a tool much like the internet or the smartphone did over the past you know, 30 years. So I'd love to now jump into your first or your newest TED talk. I did that. <laughs> so you emphasize the importance of pushing boundaries and stepping outside of your comfort zone. Um, can you share a personal experience where you took a leap outside your comfort zone and the impact it had on your life and career? Yeah, I, I'm I'm really proud of that of that TED talk. I've probably given 1,200 professional speeches in my career, and it's probably the best thing that that I've ever done. And the the premise behind it is just like you said, it's it's getting out of that comfort zone. I think so often, you know, we don't do things because we're scared. We don't do things because we're afraid of what people would say about us. And when I turned 50 years old, I discovered I'd spent most of my life not doing things if I feared looking silly, if I thought I would fail, and in a lot of ways. It held me back. Now, I had a pretty successful career and I did a lot of great things, but at the same time, I never really, I never really pushed myself out of you know, an area that, that I thought I wasn't going to be comfortable in. So one of the biggest things I did, and I talk about this in the talk, is when I turned 52 years old, a friend of mine who's a professional comic invited me to go, go to open mic night with him. And I thought he was just inviting me to sit in the audience and watch him work on new jokes and what he was inviting me to do was to write a five-minute comedy set and get up on stage and, and perform stand-up. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I was 52 years old. Uh, if I was ever going to do it, which I wasn't going to do it, I wasn't going to do it in New York City at a comedy club. Uh, and he talked me into it. And I got up on stage. I did a five-minute set. And it, it was fun. It was interesting. I mean, it, nobody went home saying, wow, I saw the best comic I ever saw. I mean, but people laughed a little bit. And from that time forward... I've now done 170 open mic nights and I keep about every, a couple times a month. I go, whether I'm in Austin or I'm traveling and I write some comedy and I, I give it a try and I'm not that great at it, but it reminds me all the time that you got to get out there and push yourself because comedy is the hardest use of the spoken word. And while I've given over 1200 speeches and I've hosted over about the same number of podcasts, doing stand up is a lot harder than it is being your guest on a podcast. So do you think that kids and younger adults struggle more about pushing themselves outside of their comfort zones? Because you mentioned you were 50 when you had that realization. You know, I think at every age, this is something that we all struggle with. I think people are, like I said, we're worried about what people are going to say. I mean, peer pressure and being judged by your friends, it's no different today than it was, you know, 40 years ago when, when I was younger. Uh, it's no different when I was a teenager, it's no different than, uh, it probably was a hundred years ago for people. So I, I don't think it's different. I think the advantage that people your age have is that the world is, is there. You can find out anything by Googling it, by going to chat GPT, by doing whatever. There's so much more access that you have to how do I pursue this dream or, or how do I do whatever it is you want to do? I, I have a friend who's 30 years old who always wanted to be in video production. And he's finally decided to go and try it. And I've been pushing him to, you know, it doesn't have to be his career. If he wants to do it, it can be a hobby. It can be fun. And he literally spent two days just Googling how, how to be an editor. And he found everything he needed. When I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor or a stand-up comic. And I didn't know anybody in those fields. And so I didn't even try because I didn't know where to start. I think the great thing for younger people is if you have a dream, if you have something you want to pursue, 
the information is at your fingertips. It hasn't always been that way. So I don't, I don't think it's different, but I do think there's advantages to, to being 17 today versus when I was 17, 40 years ago. So how can individuals overcome that fear and self-doubt when they go outside their comfort zone? Well, it's, it's like I say, you just got to do it. You just got to go try it. So, you know, getting up there on stage and, and doing that one night of stand-up comedy, I came home and I told my wife, I go, it was really interesting. It was hard. It was scary. But at the same time, it was kind of fun. It was exhilarating. It was neat to be able to say that I did it. And so I made a proclamation that I was going to go do 100 open mic nights. And over the next couple of years, I went once a week and I achieved that goal and then I haven't really stopped since. So I, I think one of the things to do is you got to realize the first time you do something, it's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. It's going to be awkward. However, if you go and, and put in the reps and do the repetition, repetition, you're going to get better. That doesn't mean I'm going to be as good as, you know, uh, Jerry Seinfeld or, you know, a Matt Rafe or some of them Matt Rafe, somebody like that. I'm not. But I get better at it, doing it all the time. And, and, and so I think with whatever your dream is, you know, you've got to put in the reps, you've got to go try it. And it doesn't mean it's going to work out, but if you don't try it, you're never going to get anywhere. So I'd love to shift this conversation more to the idea of networking, because all the adults that I've talked to have always talked about the importance of networking. And it's definitely something that as a younger person, I didn't fully understand the importance of. So you actually wrote the book, The ABCs of Networking. Uh, could you go into that book a bit? Well, I've written I've written a couple books on the subject, and I'll tell you what, Charlie. Here's the thing: the best advice I can give you and anyone listening who is a high school student or a college student is to remember this: all opportunities that you're going to have in life are going to come through people. I mean, people, a lot of people think, "Oh, it's it's if I can get enough followers, if I can get enough, you know, if I can have a, a, a something go viral or whatever." If you dissect that, that still has to do with people. So all opportunities that you're going to have are going to come from people. And it's not from the masses. It's really from a handful of people who know you, like you, trust you, who are going to see something in you and give you that opportunity. So the number one piece of advice I would give is realize that everyone you encounter, treat them well because they're going to come back into your life. I have people from high school, from college, who occasionally have come back into my life and hired me to be the speaker at their corporate event. If I had been a asshat, they wouldn't have hired me 30 years later, you know, to, to do that. So you got to realize that treat everybody well, treat everybody the way you want to be treated and realize some people are asshats. They're going to treat you poorly and there's nothing you can do about it. So wish them well in the world and, and, and move on, but you don't have to return that negativity. Go out there, treat people well, do the best you can and realize if you want, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, I would love somebody to give me a break. I would love someone to promote my video channel, or I'd love somebody to promote my podcast. The question is, what are you doing to promote other people? Lead by example. You know, every week I talk about somebody else on my, on my LinkedIn, you know, some speaker that I saw or someone whose book that I read or someone whose podcast that I read, I promote other people. And sometimes people go, well, no, 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 I'm too busy trying to promote myself. Well, if everybody's out there just promoting themselves, nobody's going to get ahead. In order for it to work, other people have to be able to put someone else in the spotlight. So realize that you know just because someone else gets ahead doesn't mean you go behind. Uh, I'm a really active member of an organization called the National Speakers Association for people who are professional speakers, make, make a living with spoken word. And the founder of that organization 50 years ago, when he brought people in this industry together, a lot of people were like, well, I don't want to network and be around my competitors. They're trying to, we're competing for the same thing. And the gentleman who founded the organization, his name was Cavett Robert. And his saying was, let's not fight over slices of the pie. 
Let's work together to bake a bigger pie so everyone can have a big slice. And I've really made that sort of the way I believe is I don't think we should be saying, I, I, I want for me, me, me. I think if I help you get ahead, you help someone else get ahead. Maybe you, maybe I help you. You don't help me, but you help somebody else. It's going to come back around to me. It's like that old movie before your time called pay it forward. That basically showed that if you help one person and they help one person and they help one person, eventually someone else is going to come around and bring you an opportunity. So you have to lead by that example. Realize that the people you encounter are the single biggest asset you're ever going to have in your life. And it's why people try to go to Ivy League schools. It's why people play golf. It's why people join country clubs. It's why people participate in things is when you get around the right people and you have a common cause and you're able to help each other, somebody in that group is going to have an opportunity they wouldn't have had without it. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone's going to come back and help you. Some people just don't have that in their DNA, but don't keep score. Just go out there and be a person who serves your community and opportunities are going to come your way. So for those students that are listening right now, what are they, what, what advice, like practical advice would you give them about managing their network and trying to just be nicer to more people? Yeah. I mean, be honest about it, right? I mean, you can't, you can't be phony. You can't be a person who like tries to butter people up. I know a person who, you know, everything they do is how do I kiss ass to the people who are more successful than me? But everybody starts to realize that if you're just being nice because you're hoping they can help you, first of all, people more successful than you rarely help other people in a big way. Sometimes they do. But if you think that kissing ass to to successful people is going to open up a bunch of doors for you, eventually you're going to find out that that's not the way it works. So the number one thing is, is that realize that be genuine. You know, if someone's an ass, don't, don't try to pretend to be their friend. Go out there and find people who are like you. Find other peers who are aggressive, who are ambitious, and who are kind-hearted and work together to help raise all of your careers. In my speaking business, uh, I'm part of a mastermind group. And the idea behind that is, is people come together and work to help each other. So it's four of us. We've been together 10 years. We're like each other's personal board of directors for our speaking business. And we rent a house every year for four days. We move into this Airbnb. We cook dinners together. We make breakfast together. We go on walks together. And then everyone gets four hours to talk about what their biggest challenge is in their business. And the other three people hone in on it and help. And you mentioned this TED talk that just was released called I Did That. And I got the opportunity to do this TEDx Austin presentation, but I got the opportunity four weeks before the TEDx event in March. And so I was going to be with this group of people in February, about three weeks before the presentation. And I literally told them, I need your help to write the best thing I've ever written. And so I didn't just get four hours. I got about six hours. And over the days that we were together, they literally helped me craft the message. I already knew what the message was going to be, but I wanted it to be awesome. And I knew that if I did it alone, it would be really good. But if I did it with really smart people helping me see things from their own their own viewpoints, I could make it really kick ass. And so that's the thing is, is if you have people and you build long-term and mutually beneficial relationships with other people, and you can't do this with everybody, you can only have a handful of people in your life. who They have your back and you have their back. So choose wisely. But if you have friendships like that, people who will call you out when you suck, people who will tell you when you're doing something wrong, and people who will be there to celebrate with you when you do it right, that's going to make a lot more opportunities come and it's going to make it a lot easier to navigate everything you do. Are there any strategies to help build more meaningful relationships? Yeah. Be a person who cares about other people. 
I mean, again, if you're doing it for selfish reasons, people see through it. If you're one of these people who wants to put on a facade that you're more successful, a lot of people give advice to people your age of, oh, fake it till you make it. And the concept behind that is awesome. It means go in with confidence before you've gotten there. But people misinterpret, fake it till you make it. And you see this on the internet all the time. You see people pretending to be more successful than they are. They're they're posing in airports laughing hysterically. They're holding up bottles of champagne in front of uh, 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 you know fancy cars or in front of private jets. That It's not their car or their jet. They're just putting it out there. And they're like, oh, it's fake it till I make it. No, that's called being a fraud. I'm not saying go out and be a fraud. I'm saying genuinely be confident about the fact that you've got as much of a shot as anybody else at reaching the dream that you're chasing. But if you want to build relationships with people who will grow up with you in an industry, have your back, you'll have their back. You genuinely have to care and you can't be jealous that if your friend gets farther ahead than you, somehow you're losing. So that mastermind group that I mentioned, we've been together 10 years. One of the guys in it went from making very little money as a speaker to making close to a million dollars a year as a speaker. He's way more successful than I've ever been. And yet I am so happy to see him thriving and have built this business because we've been there together and we built this friendship that he's like my brother. And when I did that TED talk, he lives in Denver. He called me about four days out and said, I just bought a plane ticket. I'm flying to Austin. He flew into Austin, arriving at 1030 at night, came to Westlake High School where the Austin TEDx event took place. Uh, sat there, watched me do my TED talk. And then at the lunch break, my wife took him to the airport and he flew back to Denver. He was out of Denver 20 hours to come watch me deliver a 16 minute talk. Now people would say, well, why would he do that? Because his motto in life is if my friends do something big, I show up to support. I think that's the best example. So building relationships and networking requires effective communication. And I feel like as a professional speaker, you're a great person to talk about this. Are there any tips to effectively communicate ideas and engage your listeners or the people you're talking to? Well, yeah, I mean, there's two sides to this. So I'll start with the communicating out, right? As a speaker and as a podcast host, that's part of what I do, right? Is I, I communicate out with my voice and share things. If you're going to do that, you got to learn to be a great storyteller. You can't just be pontificating from the top of the mountain as if you're the smartest person out there because the truth is there's all these gurus out there and, and people your age see it. You guys follow these people on TikTok. They always act like they have all the answers. They act like they're living the perfect life. But when you read about them, a lot of them are really screwed up, right? So it's not about lying and positioning yourself that you have it all together. It's about being open about the the good and the bad. It's about being vulnerable. It's about telling the story in a realistic way so that people can relate. So often people just show the best sides of them, right? They just show off when their abs are looking really good or they just show off, you know, whatever's going on. But that's that's not real life for anybody is we have good days, we have bad days. And being able to admit when you're struggling is part of your story. And then learning to craft a story in a way that it becomes interesting for people and not being too verbose where it goes on too long, but also not being too short where nobody knows what's going on. So that's the first thing is, is storytelling and, and understanding that, that you know, uh, overinflating your brilliance doesn't work. You've got to be able to just be true to who you are, be vulnerable about your weak spots, and learn how to craft a story in a way where people will lean in and want to hear more. The second side of communication is receiving back from the other person because communication is a two-way street. And in today's broadcast world, so many people think it's just about them talking. You actually have to listen to people. Even if you're on a video, you've got to be able to listen back and hear what people are saying 
And so the one thing that I always tell everybody is, yeah, you got to learn to talk, but you also have to be able to listen to what the other person is saying. And if you have an audience, you want to listen to what people are saying so you can bring the right type of guests and things along that way. And so you got to remember that communication is not a one-way thing or it's a broadcast. Just out of curiosity, how much time did it take you to create your story for your TED Talk? Like how much time did it take to write it? So that particular TED Talk, I probably put in about 40 or 50 hours worth of preparation from writing to editing to sitting down with that group of friends for, for six or eight hours and, and going through some, some tweaks and then the practicing. I, so I, I belong to an organization called Toastmasters. Uh, it's not really something for professional speakers. It's really for other people to learn how to get the basic skills to be able to speak but I've stayed involved now for close to 30 years. And one of the reasons I've stayed involved is no matter how good you get at it, you always can tweak. And I'm a Texan, not by birth, but I've lived here 32 years. I believe that Texans, we dance with the one who brung you. And I've had a great career as a speaker. I've traveled the world. I've met some amazing people. And I never would have gotten there if I hadn't joined a Toastmasters club and participated actively for about three years. But when I was preparing for this TED Talk, I actually signed up. And three different times I went in and delivered my TED Talk to my Toastmasters group so I could do it in front of a live, a live audience. I also videotaped it and watched the video back. And then I, I did it for my wife and you know other people so that people could see me and I could get feedback. So I, I think I put in about 50 hours preparing for that 15 minutes. I'd love to just shift to kind of finding jobs and career opportunities. In the fascinating world that we have today, what skills and mindsets do you believe are going to be crucial in the future for younger kids to have? I, I think it's the people skills. I think it is that skills of being able to relate, right? So many younger people spend so much time on, on TikTok and Snapchat, communicating by text that we're seeing every study that's out there shows a lot of people can't handle themselves when they get thrown into a room with people. And so one of the things I tell people is I think remote work is great, right? I worked for myself for 12 years uh, in running this association. I often work from home. Sometimes I go into the office, but remote work is awesome. But I think if you're younger, you need to get a job that you have to go into the office every single day. I think if you're working for, if you're 22 and you're just getting out of college and you get a remote work job and you're just sitting in your apartment every day for eight hours doing work and doing that every single day, I think that you're going to, you're going to be socially stunted in being able to get out there and connect with people. So I think being around people, learning how to talk to people, going out to lunch with coworkers. This is a thing I worry about, about everybody who works remotely is, you know, if you're not there, how do, how do you get to, to go to, go to lunch with people or people after work saying, Hey, let's go to happy hour before we go home. Those are important social skills that allow you to be able to do things in the office as well. It's building relationships with people in the end. People are going to do business with or bring opportunities to people who they know, they like, and they trust. And the problem is I can't get to know, I can get to sort of know you if I listen to your podcast. Maybe I even like you if I listen to your podcast, but I can't really trust you because I don't really know you. And so you have to share experiences with people. So I think one of the smartest things people can do is they can get around people. I have a friend whose son uh, recently was passed over for a promotion that he thought was his. He was in his 30s. My friend said, would you talk to my son? He's really angry. Works for a great tech company out in California. And during the pandemic, they went fully remote and they told everybody, you never have to come back to the office. So he moved his family to his vacation house in Tahoe because he thought it would be a better place to raise his little kids. And he worked remotely from Tahoe for a year and he's a good worker. He has a great position with the company. He's been there a long time, has a lot of stock options. 
And this promotion came along and it went to somebody else, but he had always thought it was going to be his. They, they'd kind of told him you're next up for this role. So he went to his boss and he said, what happened? He said, well, you're living in Tahoe. The woman who got the promotion, she's in the office every day. And he said, I was told I wouldn't be punished by working remotely. And his boss told him, you're not being punished. You're just not being rewarded. And so that was a perfect example of the fact that you, you need to be with the people who are making the decisions. Uh, so anyway, when I talked to this guy, he was really angry, but he's also known for throwing a great 4th of July party at his Tahoe house. And I said to him, who gets invited? I go, I've never been invited. Well, I barely know the kid. I'm his father's friend. And that was what he said. And I go, oh, so you're saying you invite like your old fraternity brothers and, you know, friends from high school and people who you hang out with and, and the parents of your, of your kids' friends, that's who gets invited. And he's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, well, your promotion was the same thing. Out of sight is out of mind. So I think the biggest skill that a young person can develop is really being able to master that face-to-face being seen, being heard, contributing in an in-person thing, because I think that'll be the secret weapon as more and more people work remotely. You're never going to change the fact that human beings make decisions with their gut. And that gut feeling that I really like you comes from shared experiences. What would you say to introverts about this? So this isn't an introvert extrovert thing. I think that, you know, one of the things we think is, oh, introverts want to be alone. I think that's BS. So I'm an extrovert. I love to be around people. My wife is an introvert. She she gets her energy from having some downtime. So the introvert extrovert thing isn't that you like people or you don't like people. The studies show that being an introvert or extrovert is where do you get your personal in- energy? So it is true that an extrovert gets their energy from being around people. An extrovert gets their energy from being maybe taking a bath, sitting home, playing video games, having a little private time. So you have to know yourself. And if you're going to be drained from being around people, you're going to have to schedule some time to recharge your batteries. But I know a young man who is a big introvert. He's a mathematician and his company had everybody come back to the office. And I told him, I'm like, boy, you must hate that. And he goes, no, I love it. And I'm like, okay, biggest introvert I know. How do you love it? And he said, well, I'm a creative, right? He's a researcher. He's a mathematical researcher in the finance world. And he goes, but I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers from the the researching of the numbers. And I don't have all the answers for the coding that I do. He goes, being in the office, if I have a problem, I go into another quants office and we can work it out together. He goes, if I'm at home, I have to schedule a time on Slack to go onto Zoom to be able to work it out. It can take hours versus minutes. Being together makes it more collaborative. So even as an introvert, if you're a creative, being around other people allows you to create whatever it is in a better way. Do you have any advice to someone about how to develop these face-to-face skills? Yeah, just do it. How do you how did I develop the ability to go and do stand-up comedy? You know, I still suck at it 170 open mic nights later, but I still go out every week, sign up to go do a 3 to 5 minute set and get up and do it. Now, if I wanted to pursue to be like a real comic, I would need to go and do open mic nights 6, 7, 10 times a week. But that's not my goal. I'm just trying to get really comfortable with it. But here's the interesting thing. The comedy has made me a better speaker. It's made me a better friend. I think it's made me a better person in some ways from pushing myself through doing that has made me better. Some of the other things that I've taken up since uh, I started trying new things, if you will, is I was never a runner. I now run three days a week. I don't like to run. I'm 57 years old, so I hurt after I run, but I go out and I push myself and do it and it makes me better. It makes me more fit than if I just did it once a month. Same thing is true with anything. I'm learning to play chess. 
I am horrible at chess. I haven't figured out how to think three moves ahead. Right now, I'm still trying to make sure I know where to move my pieces. And I've been doing it for a couple of years and I'm not very good at it, but I still do it. Same thing is true, you know, for trying to learn these skills in business. I, I didn't say it was going to be easy. And I didn't say you were going to like every single minute of being face to face with other people and going commuting to the office every day. I didn't say it was going to be easy. I didn't say you were going to like it. I said, you just go do it. So how do you approach failures and setbacks in your career? And what advice would you give for bouncing back using these experiences as opportunities for growth? So when I was younger, I pretended I didn't have failures and setbacks. I hid them from people. I just buried them and moved on. Uh, but I don't think that's the best advice. I think part of the thing is we're all human and everyone's going to have failures and setbacks. And so what can you learn from them? So you watched my TED talk and in it, I talked about the fact that I, at, in my fifties had a mental health problem. I had a little mental health crisis that I went through and I had never experienced anything like that. And I come from a generation where people didn't talk about going to therapy. In fact, people avoided going to therapy. People didn't talk about having to maybe be put on antidepressant drugs. And so it scared me. It was weird. It was out of my comfort zone, but a couple of my friends encouraged me to talk about it and to put it into that Ted talk. And I wasn't really ready to do it. I didn't think I needed to do it. I didn't think I wanted to do it. But after I did it, a lot of people have come up and said, thanks for sharing that because they themselves were facing similar problems or they faced it with their kids or they faced it with their sibling. And I will tell you that realize when you face a setback, everybody does it. I don't care who it is. You can pick anybody in the world. You can piss them off, pick the most famous actors early in their career. They were cut from you know a, a great movie that became an Academy Award winner and they didn't get the part, but they went to the next audition and they kept going and they learned from it. Why ever they got cut and they weren't the right thing. They went and got a new acting coach and they learned to do it. Same thing is true in business. You know, we, we idolize Steve Jobs in business, but the interesting thing is, is Steve Jobs was fired from Apple. And he went and founded another company, did some other things, and then was brought back to Apple and was this huge success. So he had huge success with Apple early in his career and certainly at the end of his career. But in the middle, he had been kicked out of his own company. That didn't stop Steve Jobs from going out and doing entrepreneurial stuff and, and trying to create and do things. You know, So if you think, oh, I had this huge failure, I, I don't know, you found Apple Computer and then you get fired from Apple Computer sounds to me like a pretty big failure where somebody pull the covers over their heads and not try anymore. It certainly would never go back you know, years later, but that's what happened. So that's, you know, we idolize him for his success, but we have to realize that to have that success, to be the Steve Jobs who we saw at the end of his life, he had to have that failure to get through it. So you can find that at the levels of famous people and you can find it probably if you look at your own parents, if you look at your neighbors, if you look at whoever bosses you have, wherever you're, you're working jobs while you're in high school and college, all of these people have had failures. And we're now in a place in society where people can talk about the fact that they've had struggles in their career with their mental health, with their marriage, with friendships. You know, we've, we've all had friends who've screwed us over. We've all had friends, you know, who weren't there for us. And I mean, that can sour you on, on people, or you can say, you know what, that's more them than me. And you can move on. What has being the CEO of ATC taught you about leadership? Boy, it's been a really interesting thing, taking over an organization and having to, to rebuild it, if you will, and, and having to, to, to strip it down to the studs, uh, you know, we, we, we had a staff right now. It's just me because we're trying to figure out the new direction. 
it, it has taught me that number one, you can't do it alone. I have a great board who I, who I lean on and call on all the time. And the other thing is it's taught me that it's okay to be transparent. When I tell people in the community, some of the problems that I inherited, when I tell people in the community, some of the support that I need that I'm not always getting, some people show up to help you. Not everybody does, but if people don't know, if you're not transparent about what you're trying to achieve and what's holding you back and what you need, nobody knows what to do. But if you let people know, here, here's my problems, some people will show up and, and support you. So it's taught me that I can be honest and transparent. I mean, pretending that the organization is more than it is, that's the fake it till you make it. And I don't think that leads to success. I think it's being clear and honest about, hey, I'm struggling. I'm doing my best. Here's what I'm trying to do. And, and realizing that, you know what, if, if I don't reinvent it to the level that I want, that's not a black mark on my life. I'm not defined by the job that I have. In your opinion, what are the unique strengths and advantages of the Austin tech ecosystem as the CEO at ATC? You know, Austin didn't happen by accident. When we look at the city of Austin today, the city that you grew up in that is booming and that is well-known all over the world as this place for tech and innovation, 30 years ago, 32 years ago when I moved here, we were still a college town with the seat of the state government. And it had a couple of things. IBM was here. Texas Instruments was here. When I moved here, Dell had just gone public and it was the early days of sort of the, the tech boom or pre-tech boom. But to get from where we were 30 years ago to where we are today, it didn't happen by accident. We had community leaders who stepped up and said, you know what? As a community, we could become not the next Silicon Valley, but we could become an alternative to the Silicon Valley where we could have a tech ecosystem that encourages innovation, that encourages entrepreneurship. And those people came together and they worked together in the different groups like the Chamber of Commerce and different organizations and some of the companies and some individual leaders really did plant a flag in the ground that said Austin could be awesome and could be you know, a much bigger city that is so vibrant. When I moved here, we were like the 25th largest city in America. We're now the 10th largest city in America. There were 700,000 people in 1991 when I moved here. There's now 2.3 million people, which means we've tripled in size and we've only built one road. So we got to work on the traffic thing a little bit. But I think one of the things about Austin's greatness, this miracle that we're living is that civic leaders came together. It wasn't about competition. It wasn't about an individual's uh, agendas. It was about people in the community saying, we could do this. I think our challenge now is we've had so much success that people aren't thinking about where, do we, where are we 10 years from now? Where are we 20 years from now? And we're not paying attention to the fact that we're not the only alternative to the Silicon Valley. There's 15 other cities now who have grown and are cultivating technology centers, technology hubs. And so the fact that all these companies relocate to Austin, it's going to be harder now. A, we're not as inexpensive as we used to be. We're more expensive. B, Texas has some laws that I don't think are business friendly and, and, and human friendly. I think that we need to uh, realize that you know some of the strict maybe red state laws that we have, that's not an abortion issue. That's an economic development issue. We have to make Texas a place that companies and young innovative people look at is that's a place I want to move. And so we have to think about these things because we don't live in a bubble. One thing doesn't not affect the other. Everything affects everything. So I think that we need civic-minded leaders to step up and say, what do we do to move forward and how do we do it together rather than apart? How do you see Austin evolving in the next decade? 
I, I don't have a crystal ball. I, I, I don't know. I think that we have some issues that we have to face. You know, when I moved here, we, we took on this mantra that we were the live music capital of the world because musicians from all over the country moved here and we had all these live stages and all of this. Well, musicians can't afford to live in Austin now. So we're not seeing that, that incoming. And I don't think anybody really predicted that we would lose our young music scene, you know, because we would become so expensive that, you know, musicians can't afford apartments. So I don't think, you know, we can predict what does 10 years look, look like. I think what we can do is wherever, if you're young and you're starting your career, if you choose to live in Austin or you choose to live somewhere else, realize that the future, that 10 years forward depends on each individual being a civic minded leader and caring about what's going on in the town. And I think this is something we need to remember, not just in Austin, but all over the country, heck, all over the world. We need young, civic minded, entrepreneurial innovators to say, I care about the city I live in and I'm willing to pay attention to the decisions that are being made. And I'm willing to lend my voice, my time and my money to really make sure that 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 city, that region thrives going into the future. And I think that's a message that younger people have to say is tomorrow is going to be led by the people who are 17 to 27 years old now. Those people have to know that there's going to be a time when they need to step up and lead the community. Doesn't mean you have to do it at 17. Doesn't mean that anybody's going to listen to you when you're 17 or, or 27. But there comes a time where the next generation needs to step up. And I don't think we've done a good job in society of reminding young people that someday you're going to be 45 or 55 years old. And when you get there, how, what kind of a leader are you going to be? I, I mean, you know, we, we have more information at our fingertips than we've ever had, right? You have, uh, you know, newspapers still exist. I mean, they're online, but, you know, reading the Austin American Statesman, if you live in central Texas, reading the Austin Business Journal, if you live in central Texas, watching uh, the news, but not just one news. One of the problems we have in our country at a, at a global level is there's people who just listen to MSNBC. And there's people who just listen to Fox and they get what they want to hear, but they're not hearing other things that are going on in the world. So you have to be getting your information from a lot of different places and never trust any of them. I don't care what side of politics you're on. Never trust that the media doesn't have its own agenda. And yeah, in order to stay informed, you have to do the work. You have to go out of your way. But nowadays, there's so many ways you can do it. You can listen to podcasts while you're out for a run. And there's some great podcasts out there that you can listen to and get inspired. And, you know, you can read read online things. There's, there's you know, YouTube videos that you can watch and talk about it. You know, people are like, oh, I, we, we don't ever talk politics because we don't want to talk about it. Well, if we don't talk about it, we're not going to know. We're not going to be able to be informed. So, you know, you got to have the set that you can be respectful of people who have different political views than you. And I know... I talk to younger people and they're like, I would never date anybody who didn't vote for the same presidential candidate as me. My dad was a, a Republican. My mom was a Democrat and they were very respectful. I can remember back in the seventies and the eighties, the elections that were taking place with, you know, presidents that, that you only know through the history books, but you know, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George Bush, Bill, Bill Clinton, um, you know, my parents voted for different people and they never hated the other person for it. They would talk about why. And the reality was, I think our politics were closer together then. I think the right and the left weren't as far apart as they are now. But at the same time, you don't have to marry someone who's of a different party, but you should be able to be respectful of people who have different views. Because if you're not respectful, they're not going to talk to you. If they don't talk to you, you're not going to figure out why they believe what they're going to believe. So I think that we have to have more conversation. I think that when we can have community, collaboration, and conversation, we can solve all problems. But if we're not trying to build community and finding things that we have in common so we can come together, 
That's a problem. If we're not willing to collaborate because we don't want to share the stage with anybody else because we want all the eyeballs on us, that's a problem. And if we can't talk to other people and have conversations, we're going to be lost. So for young adults struggling to find their career path or what they want to do in their future, what advice would you have for uncovering their passions and identifying potential opportunities? You know, I, I, I wish I knew that answer when I was 17. I wish I knew that answer when I was 27. I wish I knew it when I was 37. I wish I knew it when I was 47. Hell, I'm 57 and I probably don't know. But I will tell you that follow your heart and your dream and your gut. I didn't do it. And if I could go back and do something different, I would find a way to take what I love to do and turn it into my career. Now, I did that when I became a professional speaker. And I find some of that in my role with ATC because it's a very community-oriented thing. And, and I, get, I get really turned on by the idea of community and collaboration and conversation. But when I was in my 20s, I thought I had to do what they said you had to do. You had to have a good job with a big company. I got a job in sales and I had to do this. And you, know, you couldn't change jobs. And you, you know, there were all kinds of like societal rules. <clears throat> and I thought I had to do what my parents had told me to do. When I finally became a professional speaker and went to work for myself, my dad kept asking me, when are you going to go back and get a real job? I had a real job. I was supporting my family. I have kids who went to a couple of the most expensive colleges in America, you know, and we've been able to, you know, partially through scholarship and partially through income have been able to fund, you know, their, their, their opportunities and giving them that foundation. And I did much of that through working for myself. I worked for myself as a professional speaker and that's all I did for income for 12 years. And in a way people go, well, why did you do that? It fulfilled that dream I had as a kid to be an actor. I got to be on stage. I got to talk. It was a little different, but, but it matched that. So find out what gets you excited and then figure out how do people make money using these skills and don't just chase the money. If, if you just chase the money, you can end up with a really nice house and a boat but at the end of the day, if you look back and say, I'm not really fulfilled and, and I'm somewhat miserable, that's a problem. And then the other piece of advice is make sure you choose well when, when you partner. Make sure that you know wh whoever it is you decide to build a life with, uh, they share the same values as you. I've seen a lot of people uh, you know, marry some people who didn't support their dreams, uh, who had different dreams. And, uh, you know, you can't necessarily see that all the time, but realize that, you know, whoever you're going to spend your life with, whoever you're going to raise children with, even if, even if the relationship doesn't work out, make sure that you choose well, because, uh, having, you know, having a nightmare person in your life that you're connected to forever, that can be a problem too. Did the role in sales you mentioned earlier play a role in learning about people and human interaction? Yeah. I mean, that was, you know, I, I had those skills naturally, right? I, 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 I was a, I was a talker. I was a person who could put myself into social situations. So sales was a natural path for me. And at the end of the day, if you can sell, you can always find a job. If you can talk to people and influence people, you can always find a job because companies need salespeople. And so sales is a great opportunity. It's a great way to make a lot of money. And if you can sell a product or a service that you really believe in and that you think is changing the world, that that's an awesome, an, an awesome career path. And for me, if I didn't know how to sell, I never could have had my own business because when I say, oh, I spent 12 years and, and, and still do work as a professional speaker, people think, oh, you, so companies give you money to come and talk on the stage. Yes. But if I can't sell it, I'm not the person on the stage. So no matter what you do for a living, you have to learn how to sell because sometimes you got to sell yourself. If you're in a job interview, 
you've got to be able to convince the person hiring why they're going to hire you. So yeah, understanding what is what are sales skills is a super important thing for people at every age. What final piece of advice would you like to share with young adults in order to make a positive impact on the world? I think it's the advice I gave earlier, and that is all opportunities in your life are going to come from people. And people are going to naturally choose to do business or hire or partner with people who they know, they like, and they trust. And I will tell you that you, you, know, you can work really hard to get known. Some people might like you, but if you're not trustworthy, that's going to become your reputation. So there's a lot of pieces to what you have to do. And I think that realizing that the other human beings who you can share this path with are going to be what makes your life better. There's a lot of people out there right now, uh, especially younger people, who are saying they're lonely. They don't feel that they have very many friends. And I think that that is a, a downside to what's going on in our society. We have all this technology that's opening up all of these opportunities. But if people feel disconnected, if they feel lonely, if they feel Disen, disen, disenchanted and, and disconnected, that forever is a problem. So I'm not saying it's easy, but you've got to find ways to find how can you connect with people because when you can connect with people, that's where the opportunities are going to come from. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mr. Singer. I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. And like I said, you should call me Tom. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to stay updated for future episodes. My name is Charlie Hubbard, and this has been Professional Profiles.